This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of Arcadia, the novel by Lauren Groth. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I am here in Slate's DC Recording Studio. Joining me is Hannah Rosen, Slate's X editor. Hi, Hannah. Hi. And in our New York studio is David Hagelin, Slate's Browbeat editor. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. As in all of our audiobook clubs, we really recommend that you listen after you read the book since we will be discussing Arcadia's plot in depth. And a lot of stuff happens in this book. Arcadia explores the life and death and afterlife of a grand 1970s commune in upstate New York, an experiment by free people to live peacefully in harmony with the earth and with each other. Obviously, this sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work at all. The novel moves from the hippie era to the present day and then, in fact, into the future, where Arcadia once again serves as a safe haven from the dangers of the outside world. I want to start our conversation today by talking a little bit about Ridley Sorrel Stone, Bit, the novel's hero. As the novel opens, he's just five. He's tiny. He got his name because he's a little bit of a hippie. By novel's end, he's 50. He's an endearing child, I thought, an angry but loyal teenager, a devoted dad, an abandoned husband. And in the end, he's kind of a caretaker for everyone and everything, his mom, his daughter, and the memory of Arcadia itself. I found Bit a very convincing character. That is to say, I could draw a straight line from his bizarre childhood to his adult neuroses, although I didn't need to necessarily because Lauren Groff very explicitly drew that straight line for me. But I didn't always find him a really compelling character. What did you guys think of Bit, Hannah? I'll start with you. I only want to talk about the very young bit first because I feel differently about different bits of bit. So so let's start with child bit. I was so profoundly moved by child bit. I can almost explain why, I think. I love books and movies about these utopian communities. Like there's a movie called Together, which is a Swedish movie, which is one of my favorite movies ever. But I think a hard thing about writing about intentional communities or utopias is it's very hard to do it without any irony or distance. Usually you can't help but make fun of them, which, for example, this movie Together does. And I think in this case, she really disciplines herself not to. And the way that she does that is through the character of Bit. So you're experiencing this community always through Bit. So you learn about everything, you know, the free store and the kid herd and the bread truck and all the little elements and corners of this community through this child who's one of these special children, you know, in books by crystal readers. They describe this kind of child who's incredibly open and sensitive and feels everything and remembers everything and feels a responsibility towards everything. And as a child, I thought he was very convincing. And I was especially moved by Bit's relationship with his depressed mother and his childlike sense that he was responsible for his mother's recovery. And this gets spun into a fairy tale, essentially, in his head. He comes across a copy of Grimm's fairy tale, and he has the sense that he cannot speak and that he must not speak. He he wills himself not to speak. There's a great passage about this, because if he speaks, then his mother won't get better. And his mother's just like garden variety, really depressed because she lives in this bread truck. And I mean, she has lots of reasons to be depressed. But It seems seasonal, in fact. She seems to have sad. 
Yeah, right? she's, she's depressed in the she's, winter exactly. and she's happy in the summer. Yeah, they even talk about it boringly as a kind of chemical thing at the end of the book. But David, I really was moved by him. And I wonder if you were too. I was. And you're completely right about, I guess we could say the lack of irony. It certainly wasn't sarcastic. This is not a satire of utopian communities. I, I hadn't thought of uh, Together. I love that movie too. And I was also expecting either a celebration of this kind of idealism or sort of a dark take on it. And instead, it's it's neither. It's a really, I don't know if even-handed is the word, but it there's something clear-eyed about it, even though the prose, and I think this is a crucial you know aspect of the book, the prose is so lyrical as to verge toward preciousness. And yet I thought Groff always was careful with her words so that I was never distracted by them. I thought she wrote the novel beautifully. And when it comes to Bit, yeah, I thought that he was wonderfully depicted. I think I probably liked the adult Bit or, you know, liked him as a character more than you did. But as a child, I mean, one of the things that struck me with the character is that he's not hes not a magical child. I mean, this is another thing the book could have done wrong, is having this uh, child protagonist. He doesn't have special abilities. He doesn't have some way of looking at the world that is wiser and smarter than everyone around him. He's just a kid. And I think you're right. He's incredibly moving. I was thinking of two recent novels that tell the story through the child room is one, that Emma Donahue novel, and then Swamplandia. In Room, the kid's a little younger, and in Swamplandia, the girl's a little bit older. But it's that same thing. It's such a hard trick to pull off because you're using the child to do something, which in this case is you're using the kind of innocence and literal mindedness of a child to portray this community in its most straightforward way, right? Like without any corruption of adult. I mean, Hannah's voice, his mother sneaks in there with her sort of bitterness about this or that thing about the community. But mostly you're seeing it through Bit's eyes. Right, because he it's the only thing he's ever known. When he's delivering information about it, it's not with judgment based on what he knows it could be or what it isn't or what he's missing. Yeah, and when there's a celebration, he celebrates, you know, without reserve. You know, the woods are magical to him. All sorts of things are magical that the leader of this community actually describes as magical. The story of his own birth, you know, his witnessing other people's births. I mean, these things are sort of amazing, magical things to him because he's a child. I think it makes sense also for the novel to have a child protagonist for much of it. Obviously, he gets older later because the whole idea of setting up a utopian community is is partly that they're going to raise these children away from the sort of corrupted capitalist society that the rest of us in the United States live in. And you do see the way that growing up in this community affects him. And I think that that in itself is a story that Groff wanted to tell and is a way of getting at what exactly this community was and what it achieved or didn't achieve. Can I read a bit of Groff's writing about Bit just because this gets at David's idea about preciousness? I mean, I think the listeners can make up their minds whether this passage is too precious or not. Just to just to introduce it, Bit has read a fairy tale about somebody who decides not to speak in order to reverse a curse against her brothers. This is a grim fairy tale. And so he decides he has to do the same thing in order to lift the curse on his mother. This is on page 51 of the book. And this is when he sees his mother's face. He says, her face drawn to something he can't recognize. So she's clearly blank and depressed again. 
again and he wants to say something, but he concentrates. He pushes back the words that were already sickly until they die on the bitter part of his tongue. They send bad tendrils into his chest. They heap a toad in the cave of his throat. When he walks and eats and plays, he can imagine the slimy thing there waiting angrily for a word to slip past, for a chance to curse them all. I mean, you could say this was precious and almost over the top. To me, I feel like she created such a closed universe in which he is heavily informed by fairy tales. And so it makes sense. It kind of saves the writing. It's another element of the novel that I just am sort of amazed Graf handled so well. The fact that he comes across this old, you know, ragged copy of Grimm's fairy tales and reads them and then they inform the way he sees the world and even affect his behavior because then, like you said, he stops talking for a long time. I confess I've never actually read any of the novels by Jonathan Safran Foer, but there is a mode that I associate fairly or unfairly with him of the sort of child who has access to stories and they shape his view of the world in some you know, magical way. This really isn't that, I don't think. And somehow she pulls it off so that it feels believable. It feels interesting. It doesn't feel overly romanticized. Well, in fact, his world is so bare and controlled and sparse that he only has access to this stolen story. You know, I mean, that's why it works as this stolen story kind of works itself into his head. It's so dark and grim, and yet it fits in with kind of the woods and this this kind of witch-like figure, Verda, who becomes his lifelong friend and the very artificial community they've set up. So he doesn't have a lot of outside information. He's not literary. He doesn't go to the library and meet the librarian who plies him with many, many books, you know, in which he learns things and loses his innocence. He has like this one book, you know? Well, he's fairly literary. I mean, there is a sense that there are other paperbacks sitting around Arcadia House and that, you know, by the time he's an adult, you know, he has access to all these stories. He has a story of Hela and the Hela Spont, which he adapts suddenly when he's telling it to his daughter. But yes, sort of more specifically, the stories that mean most in his life are the stories about his life and his past. They constantly retell the story of his birth and he asks his mother to tell and dad to tell that story over and over again. And so this primary story that he discovers, these Grimm's fairy tales, they do fold instantly into the stories of his life in a way that they maybe wouldn't otherwise if he was a kid who wasn't hearing those life stories over and over and over again. But I'm interested in something that David talked about, which is sort of what view of this utopian community do we get and and what judgment, if any, is Lauren Groff passing on it as seen in the way that these kids grow up, you know? Well, there's one passage of the book that really stuck with me a lot, which is this prank that Bit plays and a bunch of his friends play when they're addos, when they're adolescents. They play this on the kid herd, the kidlets, who all live in one room in Arcadia House. They play this actually really quite terrible prank on them uh, with fairies where they sprinkle like fairy dust all over the room while they're sleeping and they build like a little fairy house and they make it look as though the fairies have come and visited the children while they're asleep. And then they take a bunch of moth and butterfly wings and sprinkle them and put them like pinned underneath a closed window as if the fairies had tried to get out and were smashed flat by the window. And Bit, after he pulls this prank, ends up feeling terrible about it, as he should. It's so mean. But it also struck me really as like a very obvious an interesting metaphor about the what would happen to all these kids when they try and escape Arcadia, when they try and get out into the world, that the window of the world is smashed flat on them as well. But then in the end, that isn't exactly what happened, right? In the book, you know, some of the kids in Addo, some of the original Arcadians, 
like Hela, are sort of smashed flat by the world and destroyed by it. But others thrive. And Bit, in his way, thrives. That You know, he has difficulty in the outside world because of his childhood, but it also gives him important things. And it makes him, for example, the artist that he is. And maybe most importantly, it gives all these kids this childhood bond that they will keep forever. And there's this very moving passage in the end of the book when he's 50, when he thinks about his friends, the friends he's had all his life and who he always will have. And, you know, Bit at 50 has way more lifelong friends than I certainly will when I'm 50. And so what do you guys think the message is here about this kind of utopian community and what it gave these children who were raised in it? You're moving quickly here because that prank was actually the last moment when the novel completely had me. I, I mm-hmm. thought that plank was quite sublime until I continued to read and realized what it was transmitting. That My notes are divided into part one, part two, part three, and it effectively goes from innocence to end of innocence, this novel, in some way. And when I realized that, which was just around the part of the prank, because the prank precedes the coming apart of the community right. and happens around bit sexual awakening when these little kids become teenagers. So you're moving into adulthood there and it's no longer the innocent place that it was. And it's almost immediately followed by this rape or near rape of Hela, which I'm sure we'll get to eventually. And so while I thought the prank was sublime, then the things started to unfold for me, the book, in a pretty expected way. And I think I liked it a little bit less. Like I found the first part of it really, really surprising the way it was told. And then I found everything following that prank to sort of like I could see what was coming. You were not surprised that the community came apart. No, no, it was about it was, you know, it was was a fight between the community. The community is going to come apart. We're going to discover that the leader of the community is like Lech and sleeping with lots of women and is an asshole in one way or another. And then they're going to move on to adulthood. And there were certain things I liked about the adulthood passage. We're not there yet, but there were certain things I didn't. I mean, we can do this one at a time, like stop at the sexual awakening for a minute. And maybe, David, you can talk about like what you thought of the prank and that whole sort of era when they become teenagers and the community starts to fall apart. Well, you know, it's funny. When Dan was describing it, I realized, man, there's another part of this book that when I hear it described, I think that really shouldn't work. I mean, it sounds so overly metaphorical and heavy-handed, but it didn't read that way to me at all. I do think it does have the meaning Dan suggests in that they are hinting surely unconsciously at what awaits these kids in some way. It also, you could be taken as kind of a commentary on the community itself, that there's something cruel about it. To me, when I was reading it, it just felt like this is this horrible prank that these kids are pulling. I think that Groff really resists successfully the impulse to convey any kind of message about the community. Like you said, Dan, the kids, you know, some of them succeed enormously. I mean, there's one who becomes some kind of... uh, tech millionaire and then later buys the property, Bit becomes, it seems, a fairly successful photographer. So I don't think that any of them are actually doomed. I mean, if you go back to that prank, the idea that they're, oh, they're all going to be crushed as they get out, they're not crushed. Some of them adapt well, some of them don't. And even the way that the leader is depicted, yes, he is ultimately a lech, and that's predictable, I suppose. Um, You know, he's a charismatic guy, and, you know, as Many, many examples have proven charismatic men who attract followers often abuse the following that they've attracted. So I suppose that wasn't totally unexpected, but I was still surprised by various turns this novel took. I mean, this is jumping way ahead, but at some point we should discuss the apocalyptic disease that starts to befall the earth, essentially, and the way the novel then pulls back from that in what to me was a totally unexpected way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely want to talk about the novel's vision of the future, but I think Hannah's right that that for now, let's stick with the past a little bit and we'll get to that toward the end. One of the things that really interested me about this vision of utopia or of Arcadia, at least even when it's working at its peak, was the gender divide in that world. And I was sort of surprised at how traditional the gender breakdown ended up being there. I mean, there's this whole section. I actually want to read a little bit of the section. So Handy, the sort of leader of Arcadia, has gone out on tour with his band, and they're going to be gone for several months. And as a surprise for him, Bit's dad, Abe, and several other Arcadians have hatched this plan to completely fix up Arcadia House, which had been a ramshackle disaster when they first moved in, and everyone's living out in tents and trailers out in Airsats Arcadia. This is page 12, and this is Abe, Bit's dad, making an announcement to everyone to inspire them. He says, women folk, are you ready to clean and polish and varnish and (laughs) scrape and sand and take care of the kidlets and operate the bakery and soy dairy and laundry and cook and clean and chop wood and do the everyday stuff? We need to keep we free people going strong while all this work's happening. The women cheer and wave up Bit's head. Astrid mutters to Hannah in her strange lilt, as if it is not already what we do, already. Bit looks away. And then Abe shouts, all you men ready to work in the cold and stink of that old house to get her up and ready with plumbing and a roof and everything? The men yell and yodel. The men work and build. The women care and cook, although Bit, as a sort of interesting intermediary character, cooks a lot and he cares a lot. But, you know, I don't really know anything about 1970s communes. Is this the way that they just worked out? Like left to a natural state? Is this the way that hippies divided themselves? Yeah, I think she's very clever about that, actually, because she doesn't do a lot of commentary about it, except that the women complain about it a lot. Right. And I think that was very common for utopian communities is to not think much about the gender divide, that you have to be specifically a kind of gender scrambling community, but very few of them were. And since they were recreating kind of pioneer days, it wasn't even necessarily seen as explicitly sexist, although it was some time. It was like they were going to an earlier era. You know, they were sort of jumping over the suburban 50s into a time when you would divide into natural tasks. So the women would birth the babies and the men would, you know, would be hammering and sawing, but everybody would be working equally hard. Like right. it's not as if Hannah and her friends are allowed to sit around for tea. In fact, she gets really chastised because she's she's sleeping around in the bread truck too much. So they were each expected to work hard just in the completely traditional tasks. Am I wrong that insofar as uh, the sort of voting power in the commune, insofar as it's as it's shared and isn't just up to the charismatic leader, it's shared equally between men and women? I don't recall there being a divide. The Council of Nine? Yeah. I don't remember. A, yeah, I don't know if they gave us the gender breakdown of the Council of Nine, but there are women on it. I don't think it was hinted that men were in charge. I think Hannah's right that – Hannah's right that um, – Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I think Hannah is right that they saw it – and not just as sort of even more old-fashioned, but as – I assume that they took this as natural – in some way, right. that women give birth and their bodies are different and men are built to do these manual tasks. I guess it is surprising, but I didn't notice it while I was reading. And they each embody different kinds of authority or moral authority. You know, so Astrid, who's the kind of female leader, who's the, the first wife, she's called, or the original wife, or I can't remember exactly how they say it, of Handy, the charismatic leader, embodies a kind of universal motherhood. You know, she recognizes her gift to be a midwife. I think when she births bit, actually, who comes very early. In a Volkswagen bus. In a Volkswagen bus. Yeah. And it's important, too, that the community starts out very small. 
And I suppose that's an obvious point. But one of the things, and maybe even the thing that really tears the community apart and makes it break down, is just that it attracts more people and it starts to grow beyond what it can really withstand. And uh, some of the people who arrive, you know, are disenchanted very quickly and they don't have the kind of power that the earlier, you know, pioneers, so to speak, have. And they don't all share the same load the way that they're supposed to. And I thought that was all depicted very well. Yeah, I love the breakdown of the community that, how do you say it? Cocaine Day? Cocaine Day. Cocaine Day. I don't really know how to pronounce that. But this grand celebration, which brings, you know, dirty hippies from all over the country who come and sort of squat on the land and complain that they don't get to live in the big house because there's no room in the big house and there's not enough food. And then particularly the way that they ogle Hella, who is the daughter of Handy, the leader, and on whom Bit has a really big crush. And so you get to see sort of the sexual awakening of the original Arcadians coincides with the kind of bursting of the community. It all happens at once. And then what did you guys think about this? Hella starts to go to siege, you know, so she's the men are just kind of drawn to her like flies. And then there's you see one scene in the woods, which Bit witnesses, in which She's not exactly raped, but she has sex with one of the strangers who shows up for cocaine day. And then he asks her if she wants to have sex with his friend. And she sort of says, um, and they do it anyway. You know, and then right. she's they like talk her into it. Yeah, they kind of talk her yeah. into it. She doesn't really ascend, but she doesn't really, you know, push him away. And they're all have just recently dropped acid or something like acid. And so so even Bit is not really sure that he saw what he saw and nobody's really knows what they're doing. And it's just kind of the worst of the kind of hippie drug fest moment, you know? I did not love that moment, though it's not that it necessarily read as untrue to me. But I think that I saw, as you did, Hannah, that there was this dovetailing of the sexual awakening of these 14 and 15-year-olds, not just of Bit, but of all his friends, Cole and Dylan and Hella and all those people who he'd grown up with. And that it, it was so tied into the total disruption of and destruction of everything that they had dreamed of and hoped for, that for a bit it led to total disillusionment. And for Arcadia, it coincided with the total disillusionment of that ideal. I guess it just made me sad and not in a way that is necessarily a problem with the novel, but in a way that I felt cast a real pall over that middle section of the book and made the mechanics of the destruction of Arcadia sort of a less pleasurable read for me, if that makes sense. And also the sort of rape or semi-rape of a young woman as a symbol of a loss of innocence is quite common thing to do. It happens in Swamplandia, and I had a really strong reaction to it there. Like yeah. it really irritated me. Like it was unnecessary to put her in this position of danger. You could have continued the novel without it. It would have been much more subtle. I didn't have quite a strong a reaction here because I felt it was organic and there were all these stranger guys running around. And anyway, everybody was losing their sexual innocence and Bit was already – masturbating to the sight of the other one. I forgot her name with the plump lips, you know, so it was kind of you were set up for something like this to happen, but I I wasn't sure if it was necessary. It's another moment that when described, I think sounds more heavy handed than it seems in the book. Like you said, it's, it's surrounded by all these other things going on. I mean, one of the scenes that I remember most vividly is when Bit is tasked with, they don't use this word certainly, but processing the the newbies, you know, these um, new people who show up who want to become part of the community. Many of them are runaways. They're, you know, in their late teens. And you get a sense for 
the kind of lust that drives some of the young men who arrive that they think, oh, they're going to have sex with a bunch of hippie chicks and it's going to be great and they're getting away from their parents. And there's something very dark about that. And this happens, you know, in that context. You know, Hannah, you've said you found Bit very moving as a child. I've found him to be a moving character here and into adulthood as well, partly because, you know, we see this so much through his eyes. Like you said, it's hard to tell exactly what happens, to what extent it's consensual. I think it's essentially date rape, but, you know, perhaps there's some uh, gray to what actually occurs. But it's heartbreaking for him regardless. I don't know if, if she's innocent before it happens, and innocence is certainly a questionable category altogether, but there's something about him that changes there, whether or not she already had. It's that that in the end makes him so upset with her, even though what he really should be upset with her about is stealing all the pot. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, his relationship with Hella in this middle section of the book unfolds in a really natural way, you know, where at first he just has a crush on her and then she lures him, interestingly, into her father's bedroom. And then there's a great moment when you discover that Bit has been the favored child of everyone in the community, right. you know, where Hella says to her father, Handy, who has basically ignored all his own children, well, you know, you've always loved Bit the best anyway. So it seems that, you know, here he is thinking, like many boys, he's having this unbelievable first sexual experience. And then it sort of turns Turns out that she's doing it only to mess with her father. Maybe, you know, maybe that she's doing it just to mess with her father because she knows that everybody thinks Bit represents pureness and innocence and she's going to destroy that in order to get back at her father. It's a very weird moment. The community was doomed in a way. I mean, it was never an innocent place. Uh, and then, you know, as Dan mentioned, there's this pot that is supposed to save the family that then she steals. I mean, it's a very fully realized world. And for that reason, I didn't take any one moment you know, to be symbolic of, and here comes the decline. Right. You know, when you single them out, they suddenly do take on this resonance. But as I was reading it, it was just here are all these things that are happening, many of them terrible, as this place kind of tears apart. All of those communities are unsustainable and all innocence is ultimately doomed. And so I suppose it's just in the details, like how well does she, you know, rip apart what she's created and does it seem organic as right. she's How inevitable it? does she make it seem since right. it, we all know it's inevitable. We know that this book does not end with all the hippies still happy at Arcadia 50 years later. Right living, all 200 of them still there in peace and harmony. Right. So Arcadia and the experience of the 70s and early 80s in Arcadia only takes up about half of this book, but it's the section that I think, to me at least, seemed by far the most vivid because there's so much stuff going on. But I will also say that in the end, I ended up liking the end of the book and enjoying it as while reading it a lot more than I enjoyed the first half. The third section of the book takes us to basically the present day. And Bit is about 40, I think, maybe late 30s. His daughter, Greta, is in nursery school, preschool. And Hella, who he had been with for about four years after she found him after a long, difficult 20 years of drug addiction, has just left him again and disappeared off into who knows where. One of my frustrations with this book, even though I liked a lot of the stuff that we got, and particularly I loved the last section, is that I felt like Groff made a lot of plot decisions that bewildered me a little bit, not in what happened, but in what she chose to show us. I felt like a lot of the most interesting moments and events of this book happened off stage. You know, like we exit the action just as things get interesting, and then we re-enter it after everything has already happened. 
So, for example. Well, so like we get Cocania Day and we get the corruption of Arcadia. That's great. And we get Hannah's death at the end. Those are actual scenes where we see things happen. But we don't get to see the founding of Arcadia. We don't get to see the actual response in Arcadia to Abe's accident. We don't get to see any of Bit's marriage to Hella, like those crucial four years, except we get it in flashback. But then worst of all, I thought, is that I felt like a huge missing piece in this book and a part that I desperately wanted to see more of was Bit's entry into the outside. After he and his family leave Arcadia and they end up in Queens, I wanted to know more of what that was like, you know? And it seemed like a real shame to set that aside for like a long, long scenes in Bit's photography class. That is so interesting. I wonder what that's about. I didn't really think of it that way, but of course, you're absolutely right. You know, the founding of Arcadia is told in sort of two and a half pages, you know, through the memories of a three-year-old bit. Right. Um, you know, same happens with his relationship with Hella, where you get kind of snapshots of picnics in the park and lots and lots of conversations, you know, which could be any book, really. And then, yeah, and then, but maybe it's about loss. Like, maybe, maybe what she's interested in is how the loss impacts bit more than she is in his happiness well or? but so that but i mean but then i want to really see that loss and the loss is never sharper than it is when they first leave and mm-hmm. i mean mostly i think of it because the little bit we get is so moving and there's a short passage i want to read which is in the like two pages we get about what it was like in queens like the year after they left arcadia and it's on page 188 What Bit hated most in all the outside world, hated with an irrational puking hatred, was the goldfish in the pet store a street away, its endless dull slide around the glass. When he passed the store on his way to school, he crossed the street. He was afraid of himself, of how badly he wanted to smash his fist through the window, to cradle the fish in his bloody hand, and carry it down to the river. There he would dip it to the surface and free it into the terrible cold water. It might have been swallowed in a second, a sudden jagged mouth out of the black. But at least that second would feel on its body a living sweetness, a water that it hadn't dirtied with its own dying body. Like that's an unbelievably potent message. And so I just thought it was interesting and challenging to me that a lot of these scenes were bypassed or just delivered in flashback as opposed to – you know, this this whole sequence in basically the present day in which really nothing happens other than Bit sort of comes to terms with his wife being gone and he visits her other ex-husband who gives him some money. Right, who's a Dostoevsky character. It's true that you're led all the time for the first half or three-quarters of the novel – to this dangerous moment when Bit discovers the outside world. There's lots of passages in the beginning which say, like, he doesn't know what's out there. He's afraid of what's out there. And then they make the big decision, the Stone family decision to leave. But then what you one imagines must be an unbelievably raw moment of leaving Arcadia for Queens because I grew up in Queens. And so I, I saw many fish. <laughs> we were all fish trapped in fishbowls in right. Queens in those days. But it must have really impacted him, his first glimpse of those grimy streets, you know, his his first time being beat up by kids in school, the first time realizing that there were cliques in school and kids were cooler than he was and were going to make fun of him and all the things you could imagine happening. But somehow she didn't want to indulge in that. Well, in some ways, I think it's just too much. I mean, the novel is about 300 pages, although I don't know if you guys noticed this, but the font they use is really small. So it's, it's a really little longer small. than that. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really like a 400-page novel, I think. But it's you know a relatively ordinary-sized novel. And as you said, Hannah, I do think that she wanted particularly to dwell on loss and decline. And Dan, that's a fascinating point that these things happen off stage, and it would be great to see them, but 
in some ways those are whole novels in themselves, or at least novellas. I think, you know, as soon as you get into what his life was like with Hella when they were together, you know, how could you dispatch that quickly? You'd really have to, I think, get into it. And that's the only way I can really understand her decision there, that she just had to let us imagine that so she could move on and tell the story that she wanted to tell. No, I'm curious for both of you. I had the total opposite reaction reading this book, which is I, I love the beginning vastly more than the end and particularly the bit character. And so I, I'm hoping we can hash that out a little bit. And I'll tell you why, because I felt like the character of the wistful, sensitive art professor who was disappointed with his life. Like there's actually the sentence wonders where his dreams went, which is a all too ordinary sentence for the way that Lauren Groff writes, who especially the parts in which the digital world comes in, like he assigns his students a digital fast. And then one of the students who has a crush on him, Sylvie, you know, writes about how floating in the ether she felt and how disconnected in this digital world. That felt like a much more ordinary point to me. You know, this community versus freedom, that now we live in an age with our smartphones and we're connected all the time, but in a fake way of being connected. And I understand there must be that ideology. Like the reason you write a novel about a really close-knit utopian community is in 2013 is in some ways because there's a nostalgia for that kind of tight close-knit, off-the-grid community in an era when it's virtually impossible to live off the grid. So I can see why we need to hint at the way this modern world is so different from Arcadia. But it did strike me as a little, like, then he became a kind of Andy Rooney-ish, you know, oh, these modern kids with their modern phones. I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I think in my ideal world, this book would have the 1970s section, the 1980s section. It would completely replace the modern day section with like maybe a whole novella about his and Hella's marriage. And then it would skip forward to the 2018 section, which was my favorite mm -hmm. part of the book. Like, yes, that was the third part was my least favorite part. Part of it is because of, you're right that that is a very formulaic and familiar character. I mean, as nice as the writing was in that section, there just wasn't that much dramatically going on. And if the only challenge is, well, is he going to sleep with this student or not? That's not like that much to push me through that section of the book. Yeah, and like the babysitter woman that he finally invites on a date with right. a sharing chart. That was like from Girls, right? That right. she turns out to be a Republican and right. so he can't really date her. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't totally disagree with you guys. I will say sort of in the novel's defense that I think Groff depicts the nostalgia rather than embodying it, if that makes sense. I don't think we are supposed to take on Bit's views for our own. Of course, he would feel this way about the contemporary world, and he would sort of foist these assignments on his students. But I don't think that the novel is overly romantic about a non-digital life. I do agree that this section is less memorable. I did like that Graf once again kind of pulls back from, you mentioned the student who's coming on to him. You know, she handles that, I thought, pretty delicately. You know, he's drawn to her, but, you know, nothing happens. It seemed in keeping with the personality that she had already sketched out for us. One thing that I did really like about this section that moved also in section four was this notion that those from Arcadia who were hungry to still have that connection and closeness and community had found it in New York City. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that at one point, Bit he talks to his mom, I think, about how all those kids ended up in New York. They all ended up there, and that was how they regained the thing that they'd lost in Arcadia. And I thought that was really interesting, this argument that the book seems to be making about city life or maybe New York city life in particular being the closest way you can come in 2013 to a crazy hippie commune of 1972. Do you guys buy that? Well, I lived in Northampton, Massachusetts in 2011, so I don't totally buy that because that's the closest I've ever come to uh, (laughs) hippie paradise. It's really wonderful. Everyone should move there. But I think you're right that there's something going on with the way New York draws them. I mean, part of it's that, you know, a lot of them are creative people, right? They're drawn to the city for its cultural life to some extent, but that's not emphasized. I completely agree. It's not quite the same. I mean, really, there are differences, but the closest, I often think about the apartment building I grew up in as, if not a, you know, it's not an intentional utopian community, as the closest I've ever lived to a community. And I myself, you know, moved from apartment buildings to group houses and then recently moved into the first house I've ever lived in. And it's a thoroughly alienating experience to me. And I wish every day that I lived in an apartment building. So there is that way of people living in close quarters. It's just not quite like we don't have house meetings. I mean, I suppose tenant meetings count a little bit, but not really. I see what what he's getting at. It's not completely a full comparison, but, right. it, but it's pretty good. You don't it's have a bread truck, but you do know your neighbors. Exactly. And you do have the sense that you're all depending on each other in some way, especially in a crisis, right? That in a way that you don't get necessarily in a house. Yeah, I immediately thought of the 1970s. Was it 77 blackout in New York when I was a, I was a really little kid? And we, you know, what happened during that moment? and who shared what, like that's what I was immediately thinking about and how we solved it and sort of got my mother out of the elevator, you know, that wouldn't happen now. Your Not mom was stuck way. in the elevator. My mom was walking. stuck in the elevator. She was walking my my best friend home and my best friend peed in the elevator. Oh, I mean, God. the little memories you have. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to point out that the community itself is is what, in New York State? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there. it's it's also nearby. They didn't all travel across the country to get there. So let's move then into the future, into 2018 and this semi-dystopia that Lauren Groff creates where global warming has accelerated and coastal cities are getting evacuated or abandoned and there are refugees in New York and this respiratory illness, SARI it's called, an acronym that is made fun of by people throughout the book but seems actually very real for that exact reason, um, is sweeping the globe and becoming a pandemic. I really liked this vision of the future as a way not to live in, but as a way of making Arcadia important again in Bit's life, as a reason for him to go back, combined with his mom's illness and his dad's death, but as a reason to give Arcadia a bit of that sense of shelter from the storm that it once had. I liked that as a way for the book to make a circle. Did you guys think that that future was believable? Did you like the turn the book took in that fourth part? I have to confess that until you just articulated it, I didn't really fully understand what was going on. I was like, because she was so kind of backhanded, you know, it doesn't, it's not like she clears her throat and says, it is 2018, you know, there's apocalypse all over the land, Micronesia is drowning underwater. It's like something that kind of happens in a cocktail conversation. And then because Greta has a friend named Yoko who can't go back to Japan, who's an exchange student because there's this thing sweeping Japan. I just didn't quite understand that this was very significant. Significant and right. that we were living in an apocalyptic moment. It just seemed slightly futuristic. I didn't really get it. I, I only knew that it was 2018 because at one point Bit reads Best American Poetry 2018. Oh. <laughs> the Norton will be very glad, I'm sure, to know that that series lasts till 2018. Right. 
Yeah, I wondered how you knew the year. It is just barely sort of sketched in, but I, I understood what was going on, and I liked that she did that. You know, too often writers of fiction will spell things out more than I think readers really need, and she avoided doing that. And I gathered that there was this disease, and I really liked that it circled back in this way. It also reintroduces, I'm trying to remember now how uh, noticeable they were in the early section, but near... Arcadia was an Amish community. Right. And that's this important counterpoint because they're another utopian group, but one that persists and survives and, of course, is much more rigid and probably to the people who read this book, but the Amish community in particular probably seems sort of foreign and strange. And yet maybe in some ways that's what it takes to kind of stick it out in a place like that and living in the way that they do. Right. And the Arcadians, they talk about religion as being, um, they say, it seen much like hygiene, a personal concern best kept in check so as not to bully the others. <laughs> right. But if the only faith that many of the people in Arcadia have is in Arcadia and its ability to maintain, when outsiders come and upset that, they have nothing really to fall back on. Whereas that Amish community, our outsiders are not going to show up to that Amish community because it does not seem appealing from the outside. But you're right that maybe that is what it takes to build a utopia. Well, the disease that starts to ravage the land and the consequences of global warming, I think they serve an important purpose here because – they highlight the risks of the way that we do live as opposed to the way the Arcadians were trying to live. And again, not, I think, in a heavy-handed way. It's not as though Arcadia was this perfect place that, you know, really we should all run to live like that. But the truth is that the way that we live our lives in this country and in many others, it has potential consequences. And that's what we see. And yet, like I said before, even those consequences, Groff is relatively subtle about. You know, we don't get down to the last man and the last woman or anything. This isn't a Hollywood movie. Eventually, the disease starts to fade and it seems like the world will go on, but it has suffered enormously in the meantime. Right. So is that what happens in the end? She's obviously not writing the road, right? Like she hints at this idea that the, you know, islands will be under the sea, that people will die of disease, but she doesn't take us that far. But why isn't it possible in the way that she tells it that in 2060, you know, we'll be on Cormac McCarthy's The Road? It's just not. I mean, because the ending is happy and sweet and is about the love between or the budding love between Bit and the Doctor. Is that why she stops short of that? It's an optimistic book to be sure. But I do think that David's right that it certainly implies that the road that we're going down does end in that way. But it doesn't end in 2018 at the end of this book. It gives them hope that, you know, at one point Bit thinks all I really want out of this entire thing is for Greta to survive. I just want her to make it. Mm-hmm. It's not the road, but I don't think that it is quite so optimistic about the future of humanity is to think that we're going to make it necessarily. And I guess one thing that happens by the end is that you get shifting views of Arcadia in the same way that one of Hella's and Bit's enduring debates is, did they have the worst childhood ever or was right. their childhood pretty okay? Where Hella thinks it's like they were starving and freezing all the time and their parents were jerks. And Bit's memory of Arcadia is not quite like that. I guess Lauren Groff does that too with Arcadia. So she's not sort of shoving it at you as the kind of safe haven from a world destroyed, but she's kind of gently holding it up like a balloon, like, okay, there are moments when such a place 
can seem like a shelter. You know, it, I'm not being forceful about this, but in a moment when you have, you know, sorry and lots of terrible things going on in the world, sitting in the woods in a house that your father built with a pretty doctor seems like a nice place to be. Right. And it helps also that, I mean, there's this real strain of, of I guess, almost pastoralism, of appreciation and love for nature that runs through this novel. And some of my favorite parts of this book had to do with the natural world and bit in particular his love of it. There's that scene where he's just walking through the woods and he sees a deer and then a fox just runs into the deer and they like bounce off each other and he starts laughing. Or even scenes that show that nature is not always beautiful, but it's sometimes difficult. Like when Bit is swimming in the pond and the hawk catches a blue jay and just rips it apart and Bit ends up with like little blue jay feathers on him. Right. But that's still really beautiful. And so this sense, as you say, David, that that is what is at stake if we don't find some middle ground between the way we actually live and the way Arcadia meant to be, I think is real and potent and delivered in a good way, I thought. And the one thing the Arcadians enduringly have in common, and the reason, for example, Bit says he loves Hela, is that they notice things. I mean, he says about her, you know, unlike sort of kids of the modern age or kids out there, you notice things. Now, Bit is an extreme version of that. He notices absolutely everything, but Hela can also stop and look at flowers or notice the patterns that animals are moving. And that's a way of being in the world that kids from beyond, from the outside world, seem to have completely lost, you know? So when Sylvie, when Sylvie writes, that graduate student uh, writes her essay about her digital fast, that's essentially what happens to her. You know, she puts away her phone and she starts to notice things and tune into sort of things in the universe that she hadn't before. All right. So we are running out of time. But the one last thing I want to touch on before we finish is death in this book. And that last section, I think one of the reasons I loved it so much is that it was a really quite amazing portrait of Bit's mother's final days and the way that he and others care for her. And in fact, the whole community sort of assembles to help care for her from strangers like the nurse who comes in or the doctor who helps out to people who've been part of their community and family for years and years and years. I thought that was really very moving. And it reminded me of something that I had forgotten about the beginning of the book, which is that the book begins with a death too. It begins with the death of the artful codger, the dad of one of the original Arcadians, which is witnessed by Bit when he's five and is a completely lovely moment. It's not violent or horrible. It's just that the man looks astonished all of a sudden his death creeps over him and then he's gone. And Hannah's death too is very moving and about as you know as peaceful and good a death as an aging hippie can hope for. <laughs> I really liked how just sort of chilled out this book is about death. People die. Sometimes they just disappear. Sometimes they freeze to death in a high-altitude balloon. But in general, death, like everything else that is natural in this book, is not anything to really be fussed over that much. Right. And maybe that's another thing the Arcadians do well. They notice things and they accept natural rhythms of things. I mean, Bit watches child being birthed. There's a moment when he locks eyes with the mother who is literally pushing the child out at that moment. And Bit's birth is such an occasion that cements the community together. So it's ways in which you're being gently reminded at the end of the book. You know, Arcadians are like a family. And there are moments when your family seems, you know, toxic and insane and awful. And other moments when your family comes together and seems beautiful and taught you everything you knew. And so I think you're right. Death and birth are things that Arcadians can do together. Right. And by circling back to, you know, that place, where she dies, you see it happen in maybe the way that it would have in that community, even though now it's a, this tiny community of, of just a few people. And it's it's not without its grimness. I mean, he has to attend to her body as it's 
decaying. And if I'm remembering correctly, Hannah and Bit's father plan to commit suicide together. Right. Yes. But only he dies. Right. So really, they had reached an incredibly desperate point. And initially, when Bit goes to help her, you know, she doesn't seem to want to live. She opens up somewhat in the course of their last days together. But I think you're right that this is, again, depicting something that's been lost. I mean, death is another thing that, you know, it's treated in various ways, but, you know, we have a way of pushing it out of sight, of not confronting it, of not accepting it, putting people in hospitals and turning it into, you know, a kind of technological occasion. And this book resists that, again, though, I think, without being overly romantic or or soft-headed about it. Yeah, and it also comes full circle on Bit's close attention to his mother. I mean, he starts out as a child sort of watching her every move and expression. You know, he's always sort of touching her eyes or kissing her mouth or he's really, you know, closely attuned to her body. And here at the end of his life, he has to be closely attuned to her body in a totally different way in the way that an older, you know, child taking care of his mother would have to be. Right. Well, thank you both for uh, joining me for this conversation. When we form the Slate Commune, um, (laughs) I volunteer to run the bread truck. (laughs) Who's going to be handy? Does my husband have to be handy? (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) Or does Jacob Weisberg be handy? Uh, It would probably be Dan Check. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All right, well, so thank you very much, Hana and David, for this. I really appreciate it. My program note, our next audiobook club selection is Going Clear. Lawrence Wright's investigation into Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. It's expanded from his huge New Yorker story about Paul Haggis and the church. Please check it out and then join us for our discussion on April 5th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Just search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And please don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And for Hannah and David, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.